Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartzman. I'm Bianca Bremham, and I am a Gemini. I'm Laura Tim Baker, and I'm a Leo. I'm an Aquarius. Jackie Winter Gives You the Business is a weekly podcast from the Jackie Winter Group, which is a creative production and representation studio based in Melbourne and New York City. Each week, our two offices come together to celebrate the people and processes that operate behind the scenes to make creative work happen, as well as some of the thoughts and tools that are shaping our industry. While we have a certain focus on advertising, illustration, and animation, the topics and ideas discussed here should hopefully be of universal value to those on both sides of the equation of the applied arts. This podcast is all about offering a glimpse into the work we do as a bridge between clients and creatives. It's an ongoing exploration of how to wrangle the creative process to achieve excellence no matter what the medium. This week is our fifth and final Open Tabs episode for the season. We'll be shooting the breeze and talking about such light and easy subjects such as keeping in touch, the power of no, working on spec, value-based pricing, and other hot-button issues that keep us awake at night. But first... How is everyone going? Lara, how are you? Uh, I'm good, except, um, Jeremy, I have something very, very serious to talk about. Um, Bianca and I have been discussing this overnight. I actually have to announce my resignation um, because The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, has started an ad agency. And um, it's really my calling in life to go and work for him. So you've smelt what The Rock is cooking? I've smelt what The Rock is cooking? Are you serious? This is like, that's The Rock's thing. When he was like a wrestler, that was his whole thing. I don't know. I just know him from like really bad kids movies Uh. and stuff now. I'm in love with him and his really weird videos he posts to Facebook. Um, So anyway, you, while you're processing my resignation, how are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. I've just, I've, you know, just realizing how much, uh, how much um, I inhale before every kind of um, paragraph I have to read in the intro. It's so weird. (laughs) And it's one of those things where once you start kind of thinking about it, it's all you can kind of hear and do. (gasps) You got to get that breath. It's all very exciting. It's all the content. Got to get the content in your ears. <laughs> Bianca, how are you? Well, I'm a Gemini, and so I'm like all over the place. I have no <laughs> idea why I threw that in, other than the fact that we were talking about that social networking app coaster. You had that Gemini bingo sheet the other day. Oh my god, which was that was pretty. Yes, Maddie Huinau artist, who's also a fellow Gemini, sent that to me, and it was kind of perfect. You are such a Gemini, though. <laughs> you are such a Gemini. And I, I always get told I'm such a Leo, which I think is a fucking insult. But anyway, and Jeremy, I have nothing. I don't know what Aquarius is like. Do you swim? We're the bomb. We're awesome. I am very attracted to water and other kind of water things. Like I am a person that needs like, to be like near shape water. of water, like in that way. Yeah, exactly. I eat cats and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I knew it. Yeah. Okay. In case you missed it, Open Tabs are our IRL trend forecasting events that we hold inside our agency partners' offices, where we get a few talented people together to talk about their currently slash frequently open browser tabs to the tune of a few cold sample brews. If you want a taste of this, you can head over to opentabs.rodeo for more details. But in the meantime, to help us, in the meantime, to help hold us over between events, we're having a few full episode-length discussions of some of our own favorite links from our professional development Slack channel. So to get things started, Bianca, you came up with most most of the links for this week, you were just on fire. What? Are, where are you getting all these links from? Bianca doesn't sleep. Well, this is the, you know how we talked last week about how much I use my phone. I think half of what I'm doing is just like reading shit. I just I can't stop reading. I'm just in this reading mood at the moment. Um, I just like have curated like a really great Twitter feed and a really great LinkedIn feed. And once I kind of scroll past some of the weirdness, then I get the few gems. So I'm pretty happy with my sources. But I mean, I mean, there's a couple that like Lara and I, you know, read every week, like Women Who and um, Jocelyn K. Gly's email newsletter as well. And Credit Mornings. Yeah, everywhere. 
Well, this is um, let's go into your first link, which is actually another podcast. I'm specifically talking about intellectual property and contract for motion design, which is something that's been a bit of a hot button topic um, in the office lately. So I thought it'd be something good to kind of start out with. So tell us a bit more about this episode and what's been discussed. Well, yeah. So Motion Hatch is a podcast hosted by Haley Akins, who is a British, I think she's an, an animator. And anyway, in this episode, she interviewed Sylvia Baumgart. I don't know how to say her name. She interviewed a woman named Sylvia, who was a trainee solicitor with uh, James Ware Stevenson in the UK. But interestingly, and what I think was really attracted me to this episode, was she was the previously the general manager for the Association of Illustrators and is now a board member. So the Association of Illustrators, or the AOI for short, is the UK's kind of governing body for, um, I guess, the, illustra- the illustration industry, which now kind of en- encompasses animation. Um What I was really interested in listening to this episode about was I really wanted to get out of it perhaps the difference between licensing and copyright as it relates to animation versus illustration. But what this episode actually is, is more, it was more of a teaser and a broad overview on copyright IP licenses and contracts for people that work in animation, which for us as people that work kind of like every day with this kind of stuff, it didn't really cover anything too specific to animation. It was all pretty general and um, could really be applicable to illustration projects too, which was a shame because I'm really interested in the difference. But I mean, considering motion design is relatively new, it I, it still doesn't feel like even having this, like listening to this conversation, it doesn't really feel like there are any standards in place for how you go about um, licensing animation. And most books and online resources, even the AOI and things like that, they don't really cover animation in too much depth. And one thing that often comes up when we're dealing with commercial animation, which we have talked about on the podcast before, is that commissioners, especially within ad agencies who are usually working in the live action space, aren't that familiar with licensing as it relates to the actual picture. Of course, like they understand licensing as it relates to music and talent, because that's always in a live action production. That's the one thing that's usually um, quoted specific to the usage. But considering Sylvia's background at the AOI, where I assume she's heard from you know, quite a range of artists and commissioners over the years. It was really interesting that she actually brought up the suggestion of limiting the use of animation work to the specific purpose, i.e. an ad campaign to run over a certain campaign period only, but also acknowledged that most commissioners are generally asking for in perpetuity use. So the fact that she actually suggested a limited license affirmed for me that other people are actually pricing animation usage in the same way that we're pricing or that illustration is generally priced, which was the one thing that that was the one interesting thing that I got out of this podcast, because it has always been, I guess, the gray area for me in how you actually deal with licensing for motion. There's definitely something in there like you you and I, well, all of us have, have chatted before about, um, you know, you having worked in animation before and how that was sort of licensed quite differently to how we might approach it now. And sort of each studio seems to have its own um, set of standards rather than one kind of whole industry standard. And that makes it really tricky. And it also makes it tricky for clients because, you know, if they're used to working with one supplier, they kind of start to assume that that is the one and only way that it's done. And then they move to a new supplier and it's done differently. And it's, it's sort of confusing for everyone all around, um, you know, us included as producers who are the ones negotiating these things. Um, and I think as well, one thing that has come up more recently for me um, in a discussion with a client who really genuinely wanted to understand it, but um, we got into some very tricky gray areas was like, okay, so she understands, understood that like the illustration that was part of the animation needed to be licensed, 
but all of the other stuff behind it, so the more sort of technical work, did that sort of come into licensing as well? And were those costs related? It was like really, really tricky. And I didn't actually quite know how best to answer. It's so tricky. It's one of those things where if you start looking at it too closely, like it can fall apart in kind of some areas. And that's why I just think it's so important. I mean, that's the reason I wanted to kind of talk about this is not because, I mean, there's any, um, you know, that I think these questions are kind of being answered, but I think for other producers and other um, and other people who are commissioning this kind of work, because everyone is commissioning more and more motion content now. And I think, like you were saying, Laura, like a lot of people's expectations are being set by the vendors that they've worked with kind of previously. And everyone's just kind of making up their own rules as they kind of go along. And so, yeah, people do kind of want to understand it. So I just think we need many voices here. And I'm, I'll keep hammering it as long as I can on the merits of value-based pricing, why that's kind of the best thing for everyone involved and why licensing is a great kind of reflection of that. Um, and yeah, that, that's kind of why I want to cover it. I think like what also happens is that because in general, motion projects have such a large budget compared to say, if you're doing, I mean, this is a really general statement, but you know, compared to doing a handful of illustrations, doing like a big campaign, a big TVC or whatever is going to cost, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars people then assume that licensing or a lot of people do sort of throw the licensing in with that because they're already spending so much. Mm. And I think that's where things become complicated because when licensing is done as a percentage, uh, if it's sort of 80% on like an $8,000 project, that's one thing. But if it's 80% on a $300,000 project, that's a lot more money. So it's, it, I think that's where things get a bit tricky and where clients are a little bit more um, defensive on it. Yeah, that's true. But I also kind of think that the live action community has also been so much more proactive in kind of setting industry standards for certain kind of rates and things like, you know, in in the States, you have SAG and AFTRA, for example, that set kind of minimum rates for kind of specific people to guarantee them kind of a living wage. And I know that there have been moves to kind of do that in Australia as well for our live action community. And I think that you know, that's one of the reasons I think the AOI is one of the best organizations ever because and Bianca mentioned they're kind of a UK and European-based organization, but they they do deal with um, people all over the globe, so they're not kind of specific there. But oh, we I, use them as a resource. Yeah, very and, often. And, yeah. and that you know they have their kind of pricing surveys, which are kind of fantastic resources there. But yeah, there needs to be it needs to tie into some kind of reality, and I think the old reality in terms of how much media spend was happening in cinema and TV, um, you know, we've talked about this so many times how that's kind of been completely. Um, changed and fragmented across so many different things. So I think that clients are getting kind of, they're still getting a lot of value. It's just getting kind of spread across in much kind of different ways. And I think that, yeah, there needs to be a model that fairly compensates people for, you know, how they're kind of creating this mm. content. Yeah. I mean, the general sense that I got from from listening to this conversation is that it, the process is is hazy. And I think what's interesting, Sylvia and Haley, I think, recognize this, and they're actually working on a set of freelance template contracts designed specifically for motion designers and animators. So I'm curious to see what comes of that. And I think there's actually a part two for this podcast conversation. And yeah, I'd be curious to, I think, just have more of these conversations, whether it's on a platform like... Um, mixed parts. Yeah. Whether, you know, these conversations are happen happening on mixed parts or they're just happening like, you know, client to vendor. I think it's, I think I'd just like to keep chatting about it. Absolutely. Cool.
moving on, um, I could not pick just one link for this week. I had to pick actually three because there were literally just dozens of them this week. And I think, um, I mean, I'll be kind of just kind of glossing over kind of the first two, but I think it was just interesting. I think what kind of, what really kind of drew out to me going through these links every week is that so often, and we talk about this again all the time with a lot of these kind of professional development links, some of them are just, it's just really kind of basic stuff. I don't think in all the kind of different business books and self-help books that I've kind of read over time, you know, it's really just about kind of finding these basics and just kind of hammering them in. But a few things, um, you know, kind of I've seen kind of come over and over that I just wanted to kind of touch upon. The first one is something that was really kind of top of my mind this week because I've been having a lot of these kind of conversations and it's a really kind of short piece and this is another link that you found. I'm really kind of curious to where it was from. It was from a author named Derek Sivers or Sivers. Um, and I think he's a musician. Is that right? Where did you find this link? Is This, this kind came of out Twitter? of the Jocelyn K. Glay newsletter, didn't it? Yes, it did. Who's that? She is the wonderful woman that uh, hosts the Harry Slowly podcast. Oh, cool. We've talked a lot about her links on the show. Well, this is um, a really kind of short blog post um, by Derek, and it's just um, the title is just Keep in Touch, and it's really kind of short read. It's like less than one page, and the bottom line is uh, just a bolded paragraph that says, the difference between success and failure can be as simple as keeping in touch. And this is just one of those really powerful yet simple concepts that I've never kind of seen actually written about in kind of this obvious way. And it's one of, it goes, it's kind of like one of these, I think, real empirical truths. One of the other things that I like is um, 100 True Fans, or I think 1,000 True Fans by Kevin Kelly, just talking about how an artist is, if you can get these 1,000 True Fans, and you can kind of make it as an artist. I'm like, that seems really simple. And then this other thing is, yeah, the difference between success and failure can be as simple as keeping in touch. And that's something I think we really, well, I try to, I guess, impress upon everyone that kind of works here in terms of what our kind of marketing approach is, but doing it in a way that's not kind of horrible. I mean, there is this kind of idea of kind of keeping in touch that can be really annoying, especially if you're keeping in touch to kind of ask somebody for something. But, um, you know, Dara points out here, um, and he was running a pretty big site here called CD Baby, various opportunities will come up where someone would ask me to recommend a musician. I almost always recommend it, whichever musician I had just been speaking with recently since they came to mind first. That's why it's important to kind of keep in touch. And I'm just curious, like how this might, you know, kind of work out in your lives. Because one of the things I've always found running Jackie Winter has always been this kind of thing with luck, you know, just being in the right place at the right time. And some of that really is, you know, what we just kind of, you know, what just kind of happens recently that's kind of in our head. And that's why I'm always kind of talking to our artists about like, you know, always kind of just like, just keep in touch, let us kind of know what you're doing. Because, you know, even though we are kind of out there for them kind of every day doing our best, sometimes if we just see something, it kind of just, you know, sparks our brain and kind of, you know, goes Absolutely. Uh, Countless times I've seen something sort of come up on Instagram or someone's shared something on this artist Slack channel or whatever. And then a brief has come in and my mind has sort of connected the two and gone, oh yeah, they could be good for that. And I mean, maybe I would have come to that conclusion anyway but I think definitely um, the fact that they were top of mind anyway really really helps and it's yeah it's interesting because I was thinking about it both in the sense of like okay who do I recommend for things who do I put forward things and also I was like shit are there people I should be keeping in touch with like more and more I mean obviously our clients but then is there you know outside of this is there other other things I should be doing it's yeah it's interesting to think about yeah I mean I think this is kind of one of the ways that social if you that if you're using social media in a right way like you are kind of or you're keeping in touch in that way and by following people you're kind of keeping in touch with them so I think it requires like as a producer or as someone who is trying to engage talented people yeah sometimes you do rely on kind of you know people sending you things you know more directly and we've seen 
kind of really great newsletters and other kind of really good things there. But I think, yeah, you have to kind of curate what your feed is and how things are kind of reaching you. And for artists, I think they need to kind of consider the utility and the value of what they're kind of um, sending out that making sure it kind of does have some kind of value. But yeah, I don't know. I just really liked how kind of simple this message is. And I think for a lot of artists that, you know, we represent who, um, you know, might submit kind of folios to us, but it might not kind of be the right thing kind of then, you know, because they keep in touch and kind of send us their work kind of as they grow, we develop a relationship and find opportunities for them that way as well. So yeah, I think this is just some really great advice that works is universal. B, did you have any thoughts on this by any chance? I mean, I agree with you guys. I love talking to people. I love learning about what they are doing and what you know, kind of makes them tick. And that I, I, I don't know, I've, I've had so much success. Like I've ex- definitely experienced firsthand. Um, yeah, how important like actual relationships can be to getting work. And so I, yeah, I just, I just like talking and I would like to keep talking to people. The second link I picked is a bit of a controversial one that I was kind of thinking about in relation to this, which is called the kind of the power of no. And we talked about this a bit um, about this is a piece in The Guardian and it's titled Say No and Change Your Life, all about how. Bait. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, I. <laughs> The so whole thing like is like we need like a little like a, a little sound effect for clickbait. <laughs> <laughs> the whole point here, this is something that I'm kind of just seeing a lot of um, talk about is like, okay, well, saying yes to something now means saying no to kind of something later. So you should say no because it's a really kind of liberating thing that will kind of, you know, that will free you in all these kind of different ways. And I don't know, like I wanted to kind of bring this up because I really don't know how I feel about all of this kind of this conversation at the moment because I'm someone who says yes to everything. I'm totally with you. And like, and I feel like that's why I've experienced all the things that I'm so blessed. Oh God, I can't believe I said blessed, but I am so blessed blessed to have experienced in my life is because I've said yes to things without really questioning it or just like, yes, I'll do this. Yes, I'll do that. And, and both in a personal and professional level, that's been, you know, just unequivocally vital to, to what I'm doing now. It's look, it's something that I feel like I'm not going to, I will put the link to the article in there. And like, I mean, we don't have to kind of do any kind of summary of it, but yeah, I just thought I wanted to kind of chat about it with you guys to get your opinion. Cause it's something that I really feel very conflicted about because it's like, I literally cannot not respond to an email, you know? And, and like, that's kind of my version of kind of saying yes. Like if somebody writes me, no matter what it is, I think where I've kind of drawn the line recently is kind of artist submissions. And like, I think if, if it's a fully cold email and kind of there's no kind of consideration there, but I think if anyone kind of goes to the effort of kind of reaching out, like I'll always kind of say yes and I'll sit down with everybody. And sometimes like I get to the end of the week and like I realize I've got nothing done because I've taken all these kind of meetings. Yeah, but there's, a, there's always a balance because I think what they're getting confused with here is discipline like there's there is a level of this that is just having the because he talks about the example of like I don't know you're writing a book or whatever and Ken invites you to his birthday party and it's like do you go to Ken's party or do you stay and write your book and I mean there is a level of balance and there's always got to be that you know discipline to do the things you need to get done but also go out and enjoy your bloody life and who knows who might meet at Ken's party and whatever and I think as well like particularly with the example that you're talking about um Okay, it, it is important that you find time to get things done because you run an important business and, and you know, if you don't get things done, we don't have a job. So I want you to get things done. But but also part of your role and I think your reason for existing in this role is that you cultivate uh, this, you know, 
thriving uh, culture for illustrators and especially young emerging illustrators in Australia that didn't necessarily exist before. And part of that is you responding to people and being encouraging and being nurturing in that way. And so I just think if you were shut off to all that and only thinking about your own personal projects or whatever, then that would change everything. Oh, yeah. I just think as that's the thing, though. It's like as a business, and I don't think no matter what business it is, like if you Every person is going to kind of, if, if, you, if you're looking at the long view, any person that you kind of turn down in any way is going to like, you know, come back in some way. And that's going to reflect on your reputation and, and kind of how you work. So there's that idea. But also, I just think let's let's turn this back around to, like you know, production and kind of how we work as well. It's like, I really, one of the reasons that I actually ended up in Australia is because I literally, I called a travel agent I was, and I was packing up my whole life in New York and I was like, I want to leave everything and I want to move to Australia. And someone said like, you know, oh, you, you can't just do that. And I was like, yes, I can, you know, like I'm, I'm going to do it. And this whole thing, I'm, I'm, I'm reading another kind of book about parenting at the moment about like how as soon as like you say someone, you say no to a kid, they only hear that as a challenge and they're going to kind of want to do that. And I think that it's so difficult. I find like, you know, when we're trying to do something outside of the box, like trying to create something new, whether it's kind of do a piece of print promo or, you know, make an adjustment to our office and someone comes in and looks at it and it's like, oh, it's too difficult, you know, or it's like, it's, it's not kind of, we don't have the standard tools for that, or it's going to involve like all these extra people. Nobody wants to do things that are really kind of hard anymore. And I think I really kind of thrive off that. And, and one thing with Jackie Winter is like, I've always wanted to make sure that we're always kind of saying yes to any kind of brief that kind of comes our way because who knows like where it's going to lead. And I think it's even the briefs that don't have any money attached, those have led to some of the most fulfilling projects for us or even like kind of like figuring out a way to kind of do things that seem impossible or hard. So yeah, I, think- I mean, there's got to be compromise, of course. Like it's not, I think that sometimes, again, the distinction they fail to make sometimes is that like, of course, it's important to say no to things that are going to be really damaging to you or to your the people around you or to whatever, your systems or whatever it might be. Yes, it's important to recognize when something is really bad for you. But saying no to everything is a blanket statement is insane. Well, I think this is so interesting because I completely took something different from this. I mean, reading through this, this article, um, what I took away from it was they were really talking more about how quickly the world is moving in how fast work is moving and how fast social media is moving, whatever it is. And it it was about acting on impulse versus staying cool, taking stock and thinking about what's best for the long term. And I think this guy's kind of position was to perhaps like instead of just like gut reacting to everything, to just take a step back and think about what, yeah, how it's actually going to affect you down the track. Yeah, definitely. There was that whole section where he's talking about your inner chimp, you know, and how like the chimp is the one yeah. that we, you know, that, that has those immediate desires for, you know, food, sex, water, shelter, whatever. Um, our sort of, um, yeah, the archaic sort of inners of our brain. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, in that sense, I definitely agree that it's good to not be so unbelievably impulsive. And I definitely have a, my own issues with impulse, but I, it just, ugh, I just immediately like recoiled because I remembered like a nutritionist once saying the same thing to me, like, <laughs> When you go to eat that Tim Tam, like, don't think about how good it's going to taste now. Think about how good it's going to feel later when you, you know, when you're not 10 kilos heavier. And I was like, fuck you. It's a good Tim Tam. (laughs) But I mean, the thing that like the the one quote that stuck out to me was to thrive, we must slow down. If you wait, you'll win. I know, Jeremy, you work so quickly and you're someone that takes action and is I think Jackie Winter and um, you know we've we've been able to grow like as as well as we can because you work so quickly. Like I'm stuck in this bureaucracy here in New York where things do not move quickly, and I wish that people would just say yes sometimes. 
I don't know. I think you could just as easily say the opposite of that and like, you know, to thrive, you must keep up the pace of life and blah, blah. And we would read it and be like, wow, like it's just so deep. I think the bottom line for all these kind of things is like you have is really just kind of knowing yourself and knowing how you work and knowing how you work best. I think it's it's great to protect yourself and to protect your time. Um, but yeah, like Laura said as well, like having that balance is good. So um, it's definitely well, something I mean, to think about. I mean, that can take time. My- I was just listening to the wonderful Jackie Winter artist Becky Orpin on the Design Files new podcast the other day. And she was saying she's been freelancing for 21 years and has finally just worked out that she is someone that works to a deadline, <laughs> that, has, that can only do her best work to a deadline. Well, I will get to my third and final link before I continue monopolizing the show. Um, um, this was yet another thing that Bianca picked out from Twitter. I think the only person in the office who actually uses Twitter. And this was a tweet from Tom Roach, the managing partner um, at BBH London. And I'm really interested. I'm interested in why he kind of published this at like when he did, which is kind of last week, but it was the first slide from their 19 um, BBH's 1982 pitch for Levi's explaining it with seductive confidence why they didn't pitch with creative. Um, and um, basically, the three bullet points, key issues are nearly always strategic, creative solutions often immediately appealing, rarely correct, creative credentials should be evident from track record. And basically, this is the argument that we see all the time for any kind of um, any kind of argument that's being made to against speculative work or kind of free pitches or kind of things like that, or basically why or how they kind of won this account for Levi's without actually doing any creative work. It, they just kind of won on their you know, strategy, basically. I do. Do either of you know why this was posted when it was? Because there's a whole there's a whole kind of thread there that was no clue. All I know is that within the thread, people keep asking for the full deck and they won't let they (laughs) they will not share it. That was that was really funny because, uh, yeah, the first reply was like, that's great. What was slide two? And someone followed up with, however, we were so excited about the opportunity. We couldn't help ourselves, basically (laughs) saying, you know, that they would kind of go back and do it. And and this is something, again, like the animation licensing um, topic can open up a huge a huge can of worms as well. But yeah, I'm kind of curious, like, what do you guys think about kind of spec work? Like, are you, have you, have you seen any kind of change in that? Like BBH did some amazing work back then. And it's amazing to see that an agency could have that much kind of confidence to kind of go in with that. But I don't know any business that has been won, you know, without a pitch at the moment, um, because we've yeah. worked on most of I them. I saw a quote from the ACD and, and partner of Analog Folk, Matt Grogan. He said, um, you know, I take my hat off to any agency that consistently turns down pitches based on refusal to do, refusal to do spec work. But I'm not sure how long you'd survive in this market. There is always going to be another agency out there willing to dance for a shot at a big brand. If things are to change, they have to come from client or regulated by an industry body. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think the reason I was kind of thinking about this as well is because I've just actually written up our kind of full case study for our office and like, you know, how we went through the process of engaging our architects and kind of working on it. And it's like, uh, you would never ask an architect to work on spec, you know, it's like, and like, and I think that's always the, like the agreement is that like, well, most other, like no other you know, profession would kind of do that. Yeah, and there's even now, that, um, that video that Zulu Alpha Kilo did. Oh, it's so good. Oh my God. Yes. Part of the say no to spec campaign. So um, Zulu Alpha Kilo are this like small agency, but they, they have this like 
or, or they also have this hilarious parody website that's just like my favorite thing, mocking the whole ad industry. Um, but they also made this video as part of the Say No to Spec campaign where they took the concept of spec work to other suppliers like, um, you know, architects or personal trainers, photo framers, cafes, who of course thought it was like completely bonkers. Um, like at one point he asks a cafe to make him a breakfast on spec and then like if he enjoys it, he'll make them his ROR, his restaurant of record. <laughs> It's so bloody brilliant. And these people, like their faces are just, just like, what? Like what the fuck? And it's hilarious. And, but it really does sort of point out about that fact that, you know, in other industries, the idea of spec work would just be completely ridiculous. I still think there are ways. I mean, w- what was kind of talked about in the BBH slides, I think are just kind of so relevant. And I think you can make great creative decisions, you know, without kind of seeing work, like without seeing kind of work like done for free. And I, and I, I kind of understand that, why agencies kind of do it. The, and we've talked about this before in a previous episode, why the kind of, the promise of a kind of huge payday is great, but none of that's even guaranteed anymore. Like all of these, mm-hmm. with all especially the ter- if you're pitching project by project, not even like a, you know, four-year contract or something. Like it's pretty nuts. I mean, I really like the approach that BBH have taken here, you know, because they're still pitching their strengths and value as a company, which I absolutely agree that the client has a right to hear, you know, but not actually creating any new work, as we said, as part of the pitch. And, you know, In addition to everything they point out here, I think it's just really worth noting that a successful long-term agency-client relationship is based on so many things other than the creative itself. So like looking at things like the expertise of the agency, the culture, the process, the management, who the staff are, um, you know, it's just a bit nuts, I think, to focus so heavily on creative alone without investigating those things. Um, And I think those things are probably even more important in the long run. Um, I think like an agency can, can easily seduce a client with this sort of dazzling creative work. But if you choose an agency based on just that emotional reaction to creative concept instead of this more logical evaluation of, of all the important criteria, the chances are that you're not going to wind up with your ideal long-term partner. Oh, absolutely. And look, I just, I wanted to go back again. Um, I'll post a link to our kind of case study and you can see a bit of behind the scenes of the conversations that happened when we were developing our office. But like w- the whole reason we got a great result for our office, that like, came from so much conversation, you know, sitting down, developing a brief, writing the questionnaire, like having all the kind of back and forth that, you know, w- like we were kind of committed at that stage to kind of, you know, working there. But, but the reason we got to that point, like there was a few- the time. There was a few key things though that they did that I think was was great. And I'm sure this happens in pitches because I've seen kind of pitches happen. But um, Nest um, gave us this document, which was showing like, okay, these are kind of 10 houses that we've kind of done. This is kind of what they look like. This was kind of the budget, basically. And then I kind of complete because I didn't know what I was going in for. Like, I didn't know how much kind of these things cost. But then I could see like, oh, this is how much it costs. And this is the kind of result that they got. And basically, I've tried to then kind of take that on with how you know, we, we talk about kind of our work as well with Jackie Winter. So it's like, well, the folio is kind of one of those things, but then we're, we're usually kind of able to talk to clients like about pricing at an early kind of stage and kind of give them idea of like, well, this is kind of what we've done and help them kind of guide them through the process. And I think that's just a really kind of important thing. Like you need to be able to, like you need, we talked about this with like artists need to kind of be able to sh- kind of show their process. And I think being able to kind of sell the process is almost more important than kind of selling what the kind of Yeah, and I think the is. key thing there as well is that if you are selling based on process and past projects or whatever, that allows an agency or a client, even, you know, solo person, whatever, to develop a presentation that they tweak for each one, but they're not creating an entirely new thing every time, which, I mean, you know, I said the same thing a few episodes ago when we were talking about, God, I can't remember what we're talking about, but, you know, pitching 
often means just like really wasted resources that, you know, that are not being spent on the clients that they actually do have. And again, you've got this sort of like top tier talent working till two in the morning, and then you've got the lower rung talent trying to step in and fill in the gaps. Um, and, and I think just like, I kept thinking about this, like if I were a client, I would be thinking about this from the reverse side and I would probably gravitate towards the agencies that don't do spec work because that means that once I'm their client, they're not going to be pulling resources that I'm paying for away from me in order to fuel their pitches. That's a really, really interesting point that I never considered. Yeah, because in the end, it's, it's existing clients mm. that end up funding the pitch work in a way. So it's like, it's kind of a weird thing to, to push for. Mm. It just sort of like all goes in this weird circle where they're biting their own tail. Look, all three links this week, I mean, I think kind of come under the banner. I mean, they're, they're more kind of just general kind of business topics. I just thought it was interesting that they all were published like within the like, same week. And I thought it was a good time to go over these. So really appreciate everyone's insight there. rounding things out is Laura, your final link, um, kind of, again, talking about um, pricing creativity. Um, tell us about this link and, you know, what you found. And yeah, what about. this follows on, um, you know, pretty cleanly from what you were talking about. Um, this is a book by Blair Entz. Uh, it's called Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. Um, and it's received some really fabulous responses from industry people. And it, it sort of just aims to provide rules and tactics to help creative professionals charge more for new work and, and run a more profitable business business. Um, so Blair is also the founder of Win Without Pitching, which is this uh, training program that sort of helps creative professionals win more business. And he's he's very, very against spec work. Um, so it's quite a fitting follow on from what we were just talking about. Um, so I haven't actually read the book yet. I just have to have to make that clear. Um, I would love to. It sounds great. It seems like it has a lot of really practical advice in there. Um, but I have found some really great excerpts and, and reviews online. And, and there were a few key takeaways that I did want to bring up with you guys. So the first of those was to uh, price the client, not the job. Um, um, now, this isn't necessarily a huge revelation for any of us, but, but I do like the way that he talks about it. So Blair writes, understanding the client's context and therefore your potential for value creation takes time. If you find yourself offering prices early, you're almost certainly short-circuiting the patient information gathering that needs to happen in order to price based on value. Um, so a thought that this raised for me was about trying to shift my thinking when quoting for new clients from thinking of each project as um, as an individual thing and thinking about it more as the beginning of an ongoing relationship and therefore setting precedence when it comes to process and costing. Yeah, look, I think that's really good. But at the same time, I think you there needs to be some kind of ballpark there. And like there's nothing. Well, that's where this next bit comes in. <laughs> okay. That is where this next bit comes in. So, uh, well, there's a couple of bits that, that follow on from that. So I don't know if they're contradictory, but I think if you combine them all, you can make it work. So the second takeaway that I wanted to mention um, was, yeah, quite a simple notion, but I definitely find it works. And that's to sort of present options in your proposals. So again, Blair writes, you know, that, that one of the biggest pricing mistakes that creative professionals make is to put a proposal in front of the client that contains only one option. In such a take it or leave it proposition, there are only two outcomes, 50% of which are positive and 50% of which are negative. Presenting options changes the question you're asking the client from, does this proposal present good value to a better question? Which of these proposals is the best value? The brain is wired to answer the second question. In fact, it is incapable of answering the first question without first answering the second. Um, and that's really interesting to me. And I think he's kind of onto something. I think sometimes it could help combat clients shopping around because if you only present a single price and they do go after, naturally, they go after a point of comparison and end up chatting to a whole bunch of other suppliers and end up with all these sort of vastly different price points. Um, and, and I think if we can do the work of offering various price options ourselves, perhaps we lessen the need for them to go out and find them. Um, and I just also think this can be really helpful in a situation 
where you know that what they're asking for is not going to be doable within their budget range. So I think it's always good in those cases to present options that are achievable within their range so they can assess, you know, what do they truly need to achieve with the project and what can be compromised on rather than just going, oh, that's too high, let's go to someone else. So this also brings up the practice of anchoring your proposal with um, a sort of high-priced deluxe option so that the other options begin to look much more affordable in relation and it's sort of pretty negotiation 101 stuff, but there's definitely value in it. And then the last point that I wanted to raise, which is sort of what you were starting to say there, Jeremy, was the idea of flagging a budget range before you begin to narrow things down. Blair writes, you allow the client to become conditioned to the investment you will ask them to make and you create the opportunity to discuss any price objections that may exist. The key principle of handling objections of price or of any other kind is that early objections are your friends and late objections are your enemies. Um, and I, I, I kind of like that sentiment. And I think, you know, what he's talking about in this section here is the idea of when clients say something along the lines of, you know, we're not sure of our budget yet, you should give them a, a broad ballpark to let them know that you'll be exploring options from, you know, X price range to Y price range. Um, and from there, there's often that quick reaction that that does shed some light on what they're actually working with. You know, um, something that's like, you know, oh, that's way more than we're working with, half that at most, or, you know, or, or a simple like, okay, sounds good, can just indicate that you're at least in the right area. Um, and that can sort of help save a hell of a lot of time in ensuring that you're writing up a proposal that'll actually fit their available spend. Yeah, look, I find that when a brief kind of comes in, like, you know, we pretty much know where it needs to fall, like within 30 seconds, you know? And one of my kind of biggest bugbears as well, like I'm kind of, I'm dealing with trying to do some work on my house and like, you know, getting tradespeople in to get quotes is one of the hardest things in the world. And I know that like when they look at the job, they can tell what it is right away, but it takes still takes like three weeks to get a quote. And by the time it comes back, it's like, you know, 40 times like more than I, I kind of wanted to spend. But it's like, yeah, it's so it's so it's so interesting. I think I that, don't know. I think a lot of the time when I go to gut quote, uh, like someone sends a brief in, I go to gut quote it and I'll be like, oh, it's probably going to sit in around the you know 10 to 15 K range or whatever. They then come back. They don't realize that a lot of the information they haven't given me is really crucial to the cost. And they then come back and it turns out, okay, there's actually like all these really complex character scenes and blah, 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 that would actually have changed my ballpark from like 10 to 15 to 30 to 40, you know? And so I don't, I do need that information. And I don't mean weeks and weeks of it, but I think it's important to have some of the, you know, we have a basic checklist of a few things we need to know before we can sort of give a bit of a ballpark out because it's, I don't know, I think you can end up in a really sticky situation when you go, oh, it's 10 to 15, then they give you more information. You're like, actually it's you know it just i think it makes us look bad sometimes here's the thing that i think is really interesting about books like and resources like this i think if you are a producer if you work in an ad agency if you are commissioning work these kind of guides even though they you are not like you're not going to be someone who's quoting knowing what these kind of skills are going to make you so much of a better producer because then like you're just going to be so much better at your job. You're like going to know how to get people on side. You're going to know the tactics that they're going to use. And I don't mean that in kind of a sneaky way so you can kind of get one better on that. No, but it's understanding but, a language. Oh, exactly, exactly. And that's why I love, even though like I don't have any intention of ever doing strategy or copywriting or um, anything else that ad agencies do, I like educating myself in terms of how they kind of work because I think that makes us better kind of partners in that way. Um, I think another um, it's another book that's kind of come out that I wanted to post a link to, and I found this through Jessica Hish's um, Twitter, is a book called Brutally Honest by Emily Ruth Cohen, No Bullshit Business Strategies to Evolve Your Creative Business. And this is on Kickstarter at the moment, and it's a gorgeously um, designed book um, where she is kind of putting all her kind of um, 
her skills kind of consulting to creatives and other creative businesses here. And I love this. I love that these things are kind of being broken down and kind of disseminate in this way that the people who write these things and who do consult, I like, can actually kind of make money from doing it by doing it directly through Kickstarter. It's really cool. I'm going to put the link to that in our show notes, as well as everything else that we have spoken about. So some really great stuff here. Anyway, that's about it for this week. Um, closing out as we like to every week, the most Melbourne and New York thing. Um, Laura, what do you got for your most Melbourne thing? Uh, nothing. The trains are fucked. That's my Melbourne thing. The trains are always fucked. And it's bullshit. It comes down. I'm sorry, I'm swearing a lot, but I'm really mad. I'm really mad. I'm angry. It grinds my gears. Um, I get stuck behind the barriers. At, yeah, I'm sure I've used this before, but I, you know what? It's okay to use it again because I'm fucking mad. I get stuck behind the barriers every day even if I get to the train like 10 minutes early which like I usually don't but even if I do I get stuck behind the barriers and I have to watch like three trains go past and I'm always concerned that when I'm slacking you guys to tell you that that no one believes me that you all just think I'm just late which I, to be fair sometimes I am just late but I've gotten to the point right now like video the trains going past behind the barriers to like prove that I'm stuck there um on the plus side, it gave me time, because the trains were cancelled this morning, it gave me time to get an egg bacon cheese sandwich takeaway, which is pretty all right. But given your height, can't you just kind of like go under the barrier <laughs> like me. those Lamborghinis that just what, go under? Walk under the train? Well, I'm know. not that short. <laughs> like well, I'm short, but that's insulting, Jeremy. Trains seem to be a bit of a universal Vertically gripe. challenged. Um, <laughs> aren't, B, aren't there like huge problems with the MTA at the moment in New York? Oh, always problems. Yes. Yes, and I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm on the line that's about to close next year, so I have no idea what I'm going to do. Has anything particularly New York-ish happened to you in the last week? Do you know what? Not really, but this week is actually my second anniversary here in New York, so I really Aww. should have like a wealth of things, but I don't. Um, I've just been dealing with so much American bureaucracy, like from... Uh, from passports, visas, paperwork, legal contracts, everything that I'm just like, that's, I'm just in, and I'm in an American hell right now. Anyway, the second traditional anniversary gift is cotton um, in the US. So mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe a commemorative t shirt will be coming your way. Commemorative uh, cotton bud. Sweet. Look, I don't have a Melbourne specific thing, but I do have a gripe that, I mean, if, I think this is just turning into a bit of a gripe segment, which is fine with me. But like, this is my, this is my only platform to talk about these important issues. And if anyone from the Bodum Company is listening to this right now. I would just like to say they made this kettle that I got. It's a glass kettle. It sounds serious. It's a glass kettle designed so that you can look inside it. And why? Why do you want to look inside your? Because it's cool. It's cool to see water boil. Okay, but <laughs> what do you like use nine-year-old science class? It's cool watching water boil. It's interesting. Continue, Jeremy. It's an element changing. It's transforming. Anyway, on this glass kettle. They stick this huge sticker of a water drop that is basically, I don't know the exact wording here, but it's like, you know, conserve water, only boil the water that you need, which bothers me on three different levels. One, don't fucking tell me how much water to boil. <laughs> I'm fine. I know how much water I want to boil. But the sticker, they don't use the right adhesive and the sticker doesn't come off. So the first sticker I tried to pull off and I used like goof off to try to get it off. <laughs> 
I ruined the whole thing and it's like it ruined my whole day then i had to then you have to go through the actual process of returning stuff like i think it's just you returned of, it because of the sticker goop we, i couldn't get it off so i ended up etching the entire side of the glass like with the goof up because apparently the outside isn't glass it's like a weird plastic and there's like a layer of glass inside it anyway i had so this to go annoys me more because it's not like if you boil too much water, you leave it in the kettle and just boil it next time. Exactly. I don't even know why you need the sticker, but why would you put the sticker there that ruins the exact feature of the thing that you're selling? And then also make it, it's like, and to use adhesive that's impossible to take off. This is not my first adhesive related retail gripe. I've had this problem before. I, I'm sure books. it's one of many. Jeremy. There are many, but no, it's like, it's gotten me. And so I returned it. I got a new one. We were very, very careful. I have a team of three people working on this right now in is the office. Is it your children? Oh, no. <laughs> I thought no. it was like Lorelai and your two children. <laughs> no, no. I've, I've <laughs> They're got, just at home slaving away, I've got, chipping away at the adhesive. I've got Mel and Sheena kind of on this, like right now, making great use of our office resources to try to use different substances like eucalyptus oil. Um, I'm sorry. You've got Mel and Sheena not doing their regular work. This is a side task. They're helping me get the sticker off. Anyway, it's it's like, I just think it's terrible. I just think if you're gonna put if you're gonna put adhesive on your product, project manage that shit. <laughs> Be a producer. Research the right adhesive to use that's actually removable. It, you have a point. I'm really. This, this is definitely <laughs> one of my missions. Anyway, I've really had to talk just about that. Just move back to New York, Jeremy. Just I move can see people coming even, out of your. No ear. one, no, no one, no one even owns a kettle in this city. Yeah, that really weirded me out when I was over there. Like kettles are just not a thing. How do you boil? Anyway, anyway, let's move on. Let's say goodbye. Thank you, Bianca. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. This has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Kettle. Jackie Winter Gives You the Business is a weekly podcast about creative project management and production and just making things happen in general and adhesive removal. Just venting. Our producer is a regional. You can find the Jackie Winter Group on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Jackie Winter. That's Jackie with a Y and Winter like the season. You can email us with any recommendations, feedback, questions, or comments at podcast at JackieWinter.com. Archives of all of our shows and show notes can be found at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.biz. And you can also sign up to our podcast-specific newsletter where we send out our show notes and episode download links every Friday at tinyletter.com slash Jackie Winter. Our theme music is by Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff on soundcloud.com slash Jackie Winter. If you love what you hear, you can help us out by subscribing on iTunes, rating us, and commenting too. Details are on our website at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.biz. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Bye-bye. And so she holds a flame, but it's just a fame blowing in the wind. This week is our fifth and final Open Tabs episode for this Can season. Can I pause you just there really yes. quickly? I'm going to get you a glass of water. You've got really like... Thank you. Mouth, so I'm just okay. going to get... <laughs> that is is awful thank you so much Lara no worries tell it like it is